<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to another weekend bonus episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home. I'm Brian McCullough. This is the clubhouse room that Chris Messina and I hosted on Monday, March 22nd. Topics discussed here include the situation with the Dispo app, Zoom's new SDK, the fate of the HomePod, and that secret new gizmo inside the HomePod Mini, and a deep dive into two of the long reads from last week's show, the Moore's Law for Everything Post, and Tim O'Reilly's piece on the end of Silicon Valley. Recording for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the many things, uh, talk about balls in the air. So I, I have this Zoom, um, whatever you call it, gadget. And so I experimented with it yesterday, and for about 45 minutes, I experimented with it, and the battery drained entirely. Huh. So I had to invest in an actual uh, uh, AC input for this device, because there was no way we would have lasted huh. an hour on the battery input. All right. What, what, what is this thing? What, what, it's a Zoom one. <sighs> You know, look. Okay, you, you tell me later. We'll, we'll do a whole show on how to record it. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Yeah, that's a good point. We, yeah. we could do that and people might listen. <laughs> All right. So I believe that that is going. That is recording. You are hearing me. And um, all right, Chris. Okay. <laughs> now, so we're good. We're good play, for now. You're going to play the music or not going to do the music this time? Uh, you know what? Let's do the music. Real quick. Well, see now. Now's when we're about to. Now is when we're about to lose the whole thing. <laughs> All right. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna attempt the music. Yep. And then um, you do an intro, and then I'll do the first segment. So Sounds here good. comes where we might lose everything. Hold on. But How loud was that? We can hear you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right then let's try this one more time that sounds promising Okay. Hooray. It worked. Welcome to the TechMeme Ride Home Experience. Uh, this is a intermittent, uh, not Inter- always, uh, not always. Wait, 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 myself. Oh God. <laughs> what? What? I'm like hearing myself as an echo. Oh. No, we're good. We're good. Okay. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, you're here to listen to a bunch of knuckleheads, uh, try to figure out the world of social audio. Um, and also just talk about the day's news um, to review the headlines and stories that Brian covers in the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast um, and go a little bit deeper, provide, provide a little more context um, and try to unearth and unpack some of the good stuff uh, that might be going on behind the scenes or to put these things into context um, as part of the overall arcs of what's happening in the world of technology. 
Um, today, we have a bunch of different segments um, that I think are pretty interesting from today's show. Um, some of them, I feel like they kind of came out of left field, and others, I, I suppose, have kind of been building up for a little while. Um, and, uh, you know, I appreciate, I guess, if you're going to play the whole segment uh, about Dispo, you know, that you were sort of wading into this one a little bit reluctantly, uh, both given the subject matter and the topic. But on the other hand, I feel like there is a broader conversation to be had about this. And I will admit that I, I don't know all the things about it, but why don't you go ahead and play that clip, um, set up the scene, and then we can dive into the particulars about why this story is interesting and relevant. Yeah, I agree that I was unaware of this, and um, I, I will play for as long as I think I can hear, and then I'll, I'll cut it out. But um, yes, once I come back, we should talk about how this has apparently been bubbling up for a while, and um, let's see what we have to say about it. Remember Dispo, that hot new photo social app that we were keeping our eye on as a potential next big thing? Dispo basically made you wait until the morning before your photos developed, in quotes. It was co-founded by famous YouTuber David Dobrik. Well, one of Dispo's major VC backers, Spark Capital, has suddenly announced it is, quote, severing all ties with Dispo after claims of sexual assault against a member of... Dobrik's vlog squad arose last week. I suppose I need to back up and explain a bit. David Dobrik has been called the Jimmy Fallon of Gen Z for his popular YouTube videos, which apparently focus on comedy and pranks and stunts and the like. Tens of millions of subscribers. Dobrik is one of those YouTubers that has one of those multi-million dollar mansions that is ostensibly the scene of a lot of his videos. He also has this sort of entourage of people known as the Vlog Squad, who also star in his videos. It is a member of the Vlog Squad that is accused of the sexual assault, though there have been some other questionable incidents lately that Dobrik himself has recently apologized for in video. Anyway, without getting too in the weeds over all of that, last week Mr. Dobrik was losing sponsors left and right. HelloFresh, Dollar Shave Club, EA Sports, SeatGeek, all severed ties. The very first link in the show notes can give you a rundown of all of that. Now, normally, I do tend to steer clear of these sorts of YouTube star and influencer controversies, but there is real sort of industry news here because I can't really recall seeing this happen before, quoting TechCrunch. In light of the recent news about the Vlog Squad and David Dobrik, the co-founder of Dispo, we have made the decision to sever all ties with the company, Spark Capital tweeted. We have stepped down from our position on the board, and we are in the process of making arrangements to ensure we do not profit from our recent investment in Dispo, end quote. Okay. <laughs> I, I think I, you, you cut it a little bit like quick, but... We got the point. Yes, the point. yes. Sorry. I mean, you can go, you can read the show notes, uh, click through the, the, the links. Um, I, you know, part of this, I guess, for me, just to start, because I think it's worthwhile context, we actually did a show not so long ago uh, on Clubhouse here where we were talking about Dispo. Mm-hmm. We were talking about, you know, the design of this project. And we were talking about it being, actually, I don't want to get too meta too fast in this, but it is interesting to sort of imagine the way in which we were describing it as kind of like this anti-Instagram you know, product in a way that was about, I don't know if I'd call it like discretion, but the idea of keeping you in the moment. And one of the points that I was making was just that one of the behaviors that it seemed to be designed against 
was going to a party or a social event and people like, you know, are taking photos and whatever and sort of getting lost in their phones and getting sucked into the feed and then getting out of the moment. Um, and, and that this type of product where you take the photos and you don't even know what you shot and then, you know, you get wasted. And then like the next morning you look at them and you're like, ah, oh, isn't that funny? I mean, oh my God, like this is such a sort of, I don't know if it's uh, tail wagging the dog or if it's like, you know, art imitating life or whatever it is, but I, it just seems too on the nose and you're like, oh, it's so, uh, without, I don't know, being, I don't know. I just, it's, it's sort of cringy. Uh, well, the best and, and, and tiptoeing around, you know, whatever you do or do not want to say, let's just say this. Mm-hmm. Um, can you remember a time when um, basically a VC firm walks away mm-hmm. a month from doing an investment in what is clearly one of the hottest startups in the world and just dropping them like a hot potato. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think so. So that, that's the other really big thing for me that stands out here, which is like, this says a couple things and it also um, relates to something that uh, Benedict Evans just, I think wrote about either today or yesterday, you know, where there's a, a conversation that's also happening about the nature of technology and technology businesses that we've kind of moved beyond the point where you can kind of design or build technology that, in and of itself is sort of magical and and like, wow, you built a photo sharing app. Now it's like, there's a cult of personality that can surround or be part of these products in a way that that used to not work. You know, there were several other uh, celebs, you know, whether it's Lady Gaga um, or Justin Bieber that tried to put out their own apps, but they weren't really kind of like in that space. They were sort of just like, you know, branded add-ons. Uh, whereas this feels like this is part of the, the sort of cult and culture of maybe a new generation of, of yeah. founders, right? And the the toxicity that then surrounds someone in this case actually can really do harm, quite literally, to the prospects of this thing ever getting out of the gate. And so, you know, I don't know anything about, well, I mean, I know a few people and I've talked to a few people who are on the team, not recently, um, but for folks who have really, you know, poured themselves into this launch, who have worked really hard to get this app out, um, it's just got to be so stomach-turning to feel this sense of sort of betrayal that's that, you know that was for, the thing that, taken that, away. that struck me today is the amount of uh talent that was involved in this apparently so mm. so this is an interesting thing to me where like what you're saying is to what degree was this wh- when we talked about it the last time we were talking about it in terms of like well what if this is a, a next big thing potentially tm Um, is it, is it training people to behave in social media a different way? And to what degree is this like a next generation thing? But maybe we missed what the real story here was, was this an app that was created around, Hmm. um, personality, uh, right. And, and so for all of the talent that we both know that we're involved in this, that maybe is suddenly high and dry, to what degree was this almost like a Hollywood package yeah. deal? You know what I mean? Like where, yep. where it's like you get the star attached, you get the, 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 the IP attached, you get the, you know, it's, it's good. We, don't worry. It's, 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 um, yeah. So we, I, mean, I guess the question is, can Dispo really survive the right. loss of, you know, Dobrik's fame and notoriety? Um, is it better off, you know, for him, you know, leaving? Um, and also of course, all the fundraising going as well. Um, or is it sort of DOA now that it's been tainted in this way? And at least, you know, when I perceive that demographic, like a younger demographic, 
there really seems to be this, and, and again, I don't want to speak in absolutes, but my perception is that if there is a tainting of a brand in this way, I mean, like yeah. sexual assault is like no, yeah. you know, no laughing matter, right? Like, oh, that's like the sexual assault app. Like that just doesn't go well. It's, and I don't think that it goes DOA. away soon, right? DOA, yeah. right. Well, and that yeah. was the other thing is that like, it was still sort of this like buzzy beta thing, which I, I don't know if you ever got into, I, I, I was I never able to, oh, you did. Okay. I did. Um, well, so uh, we can ask later if, if it seemed like it was something that was interesting, but really what we were all waiting for was, okay, if they open the doors, it was so buzzy. Let's get, let's see if yeah. this really is the next big thing. And like, that's, I can't see that happening. Yeah. You know, the one thing that actually is a little bit of a caveat and maybe a little bit of a saving grace. And again, I don't know how to put this all into perspective, but one of the things that I noticed immediately after they kind of relaxed the, or I guess, restriction on the invite pool, although maybe it's still invite only was I think version like 1.02 or 1.03. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm the weirdo that reads the release notes was focused on Japanese translation. Oh my God. Wow. Now I'm realizing this. And like, I'm sorry. I know this is like a little behind the scenes, but I sent you that clip where Dobrik was, and his co-host were essentially making mm. fun of Japanese people. And, um, yeah, and this is like a clip that's on YouTube. You can go find it and see it. And the fact that soon after launching, they immediately were translating the app into Japanese means that there was some resonance in, you know, Japanese culture where this, this, this app essentially, you know, was taking off. And of course, Twitter is big in Japan. Um, and so we've seen other social apps that have survived sort of outside the English, you know, kind of mainstream. And I guess I wonder if, in that way, maybe there is some saving grace somehow where, you know, the app, you know, persists on because maybe the media coverage there of Dobrik, you know, won't be as, um, I don't know, um, you know, focused. Right. So, so yeah, I, I don't really know how to exactly think about this just because of the, the sheer star power that Dobrik brings to this as a YouTuber and as a global YouTuber and what that means for all the relationships that are involved here. But to, to bring it back to your original point about have we ever seen something quite like this, especially so soon after announcing funding i i don't remember anything quite like this well and then the sort of rule of thumb is like if if you see a spark capital running screaming from this situation then maybe there is worse to come Uh, you know we know nothing (laughs) whatsoever um but it would see you wouldn't walk away from an investment a month later like they yeah yeah. yeah. So yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. I mean, not only are you pointing at all the sponsors, you know, pulling out, but to have a major funder pull out as well is really unusual. And I think does speak to, you know, there must've been some things that were unearthed behind the scenes or whatever. And I don't want to like overly speculate, you know, it's a pretty sh- shitty situation overall, but um, I, I just think that it's for our purposes, interesting to look at this as a new wave of kind of, you know, founder, creator, hybrid, in the creator economy who happens to have an app because building technology is not quite what it was, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, where again, you could sort of build a photo sharing app that had the minimal features, but because it was connected to the cloud, it was kind of a big deal. You know, you like, this is like before AWS and before, you know, iOS and Swift UI and all these tools that made it much easier to sort of, you know, build and launch faster. And so you do need that star power to kind of break out. And when that goes away, are there ultimate consequences? Um, you know, they can really imperil the fate of one of these products. Well, and that's kind of interesting because I would almost say, and maybe uh, you could point me to where I'm wrong on this. This was maybe the first one that was this high profile. 
And so I almost wonder if this is going to, if this was a trend that was going to happen, but then all of a sudden is basically dead in the water because it's like, okay, we can't take the risk on these YouTubers and these influencers because if we yeah, haven't well, done our due diligence, you know, I wonder if there are different elements or aspects to kind of like the whole cancer culture meme um, in the sense that if you are on YouTube and you live most of your life kind of recording your life and putting it out there and being, you know, moderately offensive to lots and lots of people, if you do really open up a lot more, I mean, honestly, just, you know, minutes and hours of video of stupid shit that you've said that ultimately is like really offensive and could be downright, you know, racist or sexist or misogynist or any of those things in a, in a period, in a moment where we're really, I don't know, having like a reckoning with how awful people have been towards each other for a long time. And at least when it comes to funding things and the way money moves around, um, I, it just, it feels like the due diligence is going to be, you know, a little bit different on this. Um, but yeah, if anybody has anything that they want to add to this, any, you know, knowledge, any perspective, um, you know, would love to hear from you really quickly and then we'll move on to the next segment. Um, so if you got something to say, raise your hand now. Um, I don't think Brian or I would, would, you know, pretend to sort of be experts on this topic, but we saw this and again, just given how we had talked about it recently, felt like it was, it was important and relevant to bring up, um, just to even, you know, check our own kind of, um, I don't know. We, we were, we were pretty, you know, positive and, you know, sort of guffed about it a little bit. Um, you know, so, all right. Not seeing any hands right now. So happy to move on, Brian, if you want to move on. Yes. So attempt number two. Okay. And this is more in your wheelhouse. Here it Great. Comes. Yes. Speaking of hot startups that people were waiting on to see what the next act might look like, Zoom has today announced an SDK to help developers build Zoom video services into other apps, quoting TechCrunch. One clear sign of a maturing platform is when the company exposes the services it uses for its own tools to other developers. Zoom has been doing that for some time, introducing Zoom apps last year and the marketplace to distribute and sell those apps. Today, the company introduced a new SDK, Software Development Kit, to help developers embed Zoom video services inside other applications. If you want to include video in your app, you could try and code it yourself, or you could simply take advantage of Zoom's expertise in this area and use the SDK to add video to the application and save a lot of time and effort. The company envisions applications developers embedding video in social, gaming, or retail applications where including video could enhance the user experience. For example, a shop owner could show different outfits to an online shopper in a live video feed and discuss their tastes in real time. Zoom CTO Brendan Idelson said the SDK is actually part of a broader set of services designed to help developers take advantage of all the developer tooling that the company has been developing in recent years. As part of that push, the company is also announcing a central developer portal. In addition, the company said that it wanted to give developers more data about how people are using these Zoom features in their applications, so they will be providing a new analytics dashboard with usage statistics, end quote. So as I've been saying recently, devs, revs your engines. Okay, so, uh, you know, it's interesting. I just I pulled up the, um, so developer.zoom.us is the place to go to sort of learn a little bit more about this. And, you know, I sort of 
you listened to the, the the segment in the clip and and you know had sort of a high level overview like oh okay finally like you know like I know Zoom had been allowing people to build apps previously into the Zoom experience but this is building you know Zoom into third party apps you know and of course I've got some background of this having worked on Google's developer platform and um, also Uber's and when I was at Uber you know one of our teams uh, the Uber developer platform team specific roles and responsibilities was essentially to distribute Uber trips into more and more apps. So for example, one of the integrations was with the United uh, app so that when you would land at an airport, you know, you'd be able to book a car directly from within the United app, or at least there'd be a button that would then take you into a pre-filled, you know, ride hail uh, inside of Uber. And so that was, you know, pretty straightforward. Um, one of the things that is different that I'm noticing right away. And I don't know, I feel like there's a bunch of today's topics are kind of all about these big transitional shifts that seem to be going on in the industry. In this case, specifically, when you dig into the developer docs, one of the first things that you'll notice with the SDK is that you have to buy it. And I don't remember, and I know I I don't work in the video space, and I know obviously video is very expensive to produce, but uh, the way that this works is that you either pay $1,000 a year to get access to this SDK, or you pay as you go. And so you get 10,000 minutes that are included per month or 0.0035 cents per minute used is essentially the rate. And the fact that this is so built into like a business model for Zoom, I think is is really fascinating because it really positions them more as, uh, you know, kind of like a telephony provider. And they are then therefore more competitive with um, the Agora folks who are, of course, back-ending the the Clubhouse experience um, or Twilio or Mux or other video call providers. And I think that's really interesting um, because my mind sort of was originally going to, oh, this seems somewhat competitive with Snapchat and what Snap's trying to do with the camera as a platform. And this is a little bit different. Um, I need to dig into like the, the specifics of what the capabilities are of this API um, and the SDK specifically, but the fact that they're charging out of the gate like that, I think is really interesting because one, I guess it just presumes that they have such market share that they don't need to really worry about convincing developers. If people want to use this, not only are they going to be paying for it immediately, but maybe that presumes that the downstream developers have to figure out how they're going to monetize their apps as well. So this just points to an acceleration of what's overall happening in the technology world, where it's no longer about making everything free and burning the the VC dollars to essentially get growth, but it's saying from the outset, no, 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 we're a business and you're going to pay us for the value that we're providing and you need to figure out downstream how you're going to make money with this. Well, so let me, because, you know, as I will always say, I'm nowhere near a dev. I, I, I read in that segment that it's like, well, you, you can add video to your app or whatever, a live yep. video, uh, or you can just do this so it's much easier. So are they solving a, a very, very difficult problem? You know what I'm saying? Like from a developer's perspective, is that such a huge thing that they can charge for it? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say a couple things. You know, the one thing that I think Zoom has done pretty well um, at least in my experience using a bunch of different video services is just like they have a really robust, reliable, like video CDN. And so essentially they're able to provide, um, you know, video that feels, or at least like a video experience that handles a huge number of participants. It has a lot of different capabilities in terms of the way in which you can, you know, mux, you know, or, or combine or multiplex videos into the, like a, a single stream. And one of the things that I've been noticing, and this is more, I don't know if it's paranoia or, like accurate, but 
in a lot of cases, when I'm on calls with people where the quality of the video actually doesn't look that good, I'm noticing what looks like essentially like deep fake, deep dream style video artifacts where they may actually be using a codec that is way more efficient than the standard sort of WebRTC you know, that's available in the, in the browser. So they're adding in a layer of interpolation that downsamples a video without losing quality because they're actually using artificial intelligence. Then that does make this more resilient, more robust over the various network conditions that most people will find themselves in. So in that sense, that is, that is a pretty good quality. Oh, Alex has something to say. I'm going to bring him up because uh, I'm sure he can actually, he has some good, good experience that'll uh, disabuse me of whatever I'm saying incorrectly. Um, invite to speak. There we go. Alex, please hey, tell Dennis, me how I'm wrong. <laughs> hey, well, first, how you doing? Good. How are you? I'm awesome. It was a really interesting observation you made, um, and the uh, the analogy that you're drawing around Twilio, because on the one hand, absolutely, there are SDKs that are free and developer programs that are free, and even APIs that are free, because what that tends to do is drag in the customer base, um, and you build out these network effects. So for example, in, in, in a last job, like at, at Intuit, for example, the SDK is free. You want to encourage integration of QBO, QuickBooks Online, into the experience of third-party apps. There's a baseline assumption though, which is there's an end customer that is paying for QuickBooks Online somewhere along the chain. And that integration then is delivering value to the QBO customer and more value because of these integrated products and back to the third party. Yep. What, what I'm hearing from you, uh, and I think it's, it's, it's an important point to, to remind myself of, is, is that hey, this strategy is a, this is a brand new market that is opening up. A third party out that wants to use that capability has to pay for it somehow and it's not about Zoom customer acquisition. I'm assuming, and actually, I don't know, was this a, a white-labeled end customer experience, or do you have to become a customer of Zoom as the end-end customer of the, of the integration? That's a good question. Um, and I think that it's, you know, from my quick read of it, if you wanted to build your own Zoom, then you can build your own Zoom. So basically, that yeah, would be white-labeled, okay. and essentially, it's like Twilio, and so you don't even know, you know, or like Vonage, like who's providing yeah. the video behind the scenes. And in this case, it happens to be Zoom. And so they're just sort of like your pipeline provider for that. Yeah. Service. Yeah. And then I think that your your, your analysis is, is correct. And I think, uh, you know, the analogy around Twilio is another telephony or communication service that you don't want to build for yourself. You don't want to necessarily, it's not about customer acquisition for Zoom for the end customer. It's about third-party developers as the customer paying for the service. So that makes a total bunch of sense. And so I appreciate you actually pointing that out. I would have skip past that detail having not read it myself. Yeah, actually I'm reading I'm reading that the there's a a comparison between the video SDK versus the client SDK. And one of the things that is important here is in the client SDK, you're essentially bringing the the full Zoom experience into your app. And so that can be like the meeting interface or you know, you just want to initiate like a, a video call. Well it's sort of video calls handled by Zoom, right? Whereas if again you want to build a competitor or you want to build, you know, a, a Discord clone and you want to have video calls in it then you can essentially white label uh, Zoom w- with your own brand. And so then you as the developer are, are paying you know, Zoom for that capability. And then it's up to you to figure out how you monetize that, whether it's in-game you know, purchases or whether it's you know, charging your clients or maybe it's enterprise 
licensing or whatever it is. So yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So I'm glad to hear that validated. Perfect. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks. Um, before we leave this, yes. can you explain to me then functionally what um, Snap is offering developers differently? Yeah. So, and I feel like I'm going to fuck this up too, because I'm, I'm again, like you, I'm not a developer, um, but I, I read these things, I follow them and I know enough to be dangerous without, you know, being able to break too many things. And I would say that what the snap SDK allows you to do is to either build things into the snap camera, sort of, um, you know, whether it's uh, face effects or things like that, or to bring the snap camera uh, as an SDK into your, into your own product and to do different integrations that way. Um, you know, if anybody has specifics about the Snap SDK, I'm sure there are folks actually in the audience who have possibly built things with it. You know, please again, like correct us. We're we're here learning in public too. But I, I I see this as being quite different. Like to me, I think the Snap brand is still very very important to their offering, and so therefore the major difference here is that Zoom is offering quite a bit. Uh, you know, is is doing something a lot more like Twilio um, or Vonage, where you never even see their brand, and so that's a much different play than you know, the snap camera or like snap lenses or even Bitmoji would be a good example of the types of developer products and offerings that snap offers. So people can basically build with the Lego blocks of snap without actually diminishing the snap brand. Or, and this is me going way out on a limb. Is it the sort of, um, the analogy of, uh, increasing the GDP of video in the stripe sense where, they don't care. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. So, so anything that you can do and, you know, video is so hard, um, at least, you know, from the developers that I've talked to, it's sort of like time zones and, and all that. Like there's just some things that you kind of want a library or you want someone else to take care of, like all the, all the stuff that gets, you know, it's hard. Like it's one thing, and maybe, maybe one thing to help sort of, you know, to, to relate to this differently. It's one thing to, let's say, build an app that has, you know, video in it, and you do some testing on your local machine and it works, right? The real difference is when you start making phone calls or going between different types of networks or different network topologies or where you're going from, you know, like a fiber network down to like 3G and you have to kind of like maintain coherence amongst all those things, right? So quality of service becomes really, really important. And so you want to use a reliable video provider that charges you fairly for access. And I will note, you know, and I, I don't have the economics... Um, kind of awareness to say whether this is a good or bad deal, but it is interesting that Zoom is choosing to charge by the minute or for an annual license, you know, which $1,000 sounds high given the cost of the Apple um, developer um, uh, account license, which I think is like a hundred bucks or whatever. Uh, however, if you go and build an app and you sell it in the app store, Apple's going to make money off of that downstream thing. Whereas in the case of Zoom, you go build an app and you charge $1,000 a minute, you know, for phone calls and you'll happen to, you know, find some customers who are in crypto or something <laughs> to sell it to, um, then you keep all that revenue, right? So there's no rev split between it. And so it really is just a service that you're consuming. And so charging by the minute means that Zoom doesn't really care the, the quality or the bandwidth, at least as far as I can tell, that's being consumed by the end user. And that's also really interesting because if you think about how video is going to only increase in usage over the next several years, and that bandwidth is going to increase with the rollout of 5G and with new phones, then that puts them in a very interesting position because maybe as a developer, you can have more either reliable or predictable pricing 
relative to charging for bandwidth or megabytes or gigabytes of, of um, you know, uh, yeah, transfer. Um, I'm going to do a transition that says, speaking Perfect. of Apple, but, but, but before I do, Chris, yes. if you want to remind everyone what we're doing here. Yes, thank you. So um, you are, I don't want to say halfway through, because this time, you know, we maybe you're a third of the way through. Um, this is the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience, where every so often, and maybe aspirationally someday, we'll do it every day. Uh, Brian and I basically break down our favorite and most interesting topics of the day from the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. Um, we go into each topic in a little more detail to put it a little more in context and to help both explain and digest the types of things that are going on in the world of tech. Now, speaking of Apple. Teardown of Apple's HomePod Mini has revealed a sensor that measures temperature and humidity inside it. That sensor is currently disabled, but yeah, looks like we might have some new HomeKit features incoming. Quoting Mark Gurman in Bloomberg, the Cupertino, California-based technology giant never disclosed this component, and the device currently lacks consumer-facing features that use it. The company has internally discussed using the sensor to determine a room's temperature and humidity so internet-connected thermostats can adjust different parts of a home based on current conditions, according to people familiar with the situation. The hardware could also let the HomePod Mini automatically trigger other actions, say turning a fan on or off, depending on the temperature. The new capabilities would be a particular boon to an Apple software system called HomeKit that controls thermostats, lights, locks, plugs, and other devices in the home. HomeKit works with fewer gadgets than similar software from Amazon and Google, and Apple doesn't make its own smart home hardware beyond the HomePod and Apple TV streaming box. However, there are about 40 thermostats featured on Apple's website that are compatible with HomeKit. The sensor, measuring 1.5 by 1.5 millimeters, is buried in the bottom edge of the HomePod Mini's plastic fabric-wrapped case near its power cable. The component's location was confirmed by I fix it, which took apart one of the speakers after an inquiry from Bloomberg News. The sensor is made by Texas Instruments and is called the HDC 2010 Humidity and Temperature Digital Sensor, according to Tech Insights, a firm that analyzes components inside of electronics. The part is situated relatively far from the device's main internal components, meaning it is designed to measure the external environment rather than the temperature of the speaker's other electronics. Many mobile devices include sensors that can trigger the device to slow performance or disable features to stop components overheating. While rare, this isn't the first time Apple has slipped a dormant piece of technology into its devices. The 2008 iPod Touch had a Bluetooth chip, but support for Bluetooth connectivity was enabled the following year via software. Apple typically releases major HomePod software updates annually in the fall. It's unclear if or when Apple will switch on the temperature sensor, but its presence in HomePod mini units that have already been sold suggests that this is just a matter of time. An Apple spokeswoman declined to comment, end quote. By the way, it did slip through the cracks because of weekend timing and cadence and whatnot, but I will take this opportunity to note that Apple has officially discontinued the original HomePod to focus instead going forward only on the HomePod mini. Apple will provide HomePod owners software updates and support via Apple Care, but yeah, big swing and a miss here for Apple in the smart speaker market. They were late, they came in at the high end and expensive, and now... They better hope that the Mini can carve out a niche for itself, 
maybe with new features like this. Yeah. So it's funny when the first news, when the first news of this, I would say specifically of the HomePod being discontinued, you know, came out. um, I remember I got into like this little kerfuffle on Twitter uh, about whether or not you could consider the HomePod a success or not. And I believe uh, one of the arguments that was being made against me was that, you know, some 9 million units had sold, which accounted for, was it that or was it 300 million? I don't know. It was like some large, maybe 3 million units were sold, which then accounted for $900 million in revenue. I think that's, that's roughly what it was. Um, and, you know, someone can check my numbers. But the point was, you know, was that the HomePod, even though it's being discontinued after some period of time, was still a success. And I want to push back on that. And one of the reasons, I suppose... Not is, a success. Not a success. <laughs> is because of, like, little discoveries like this. You know, like, I don't know if it's, like, a lack... Like, I don't know, but before I, I break into this, I, I just want to hear, you know, from you, Brian, like, what, where, where, where does the story sort of sit with you relative to all the other Apple stories and all the other hardware things that you cover? Like, how, how do you receive this? It's, it's weird to me because... Uh, didn't we do a story recently about how Sonos is maybe resurgent? Ah, yes. Um, and one of the things that I read when I was researching for this this morning was like, well, this is essentially seeding the high-end speaker market, the soundbar market, the, yep. you know, uh, t- to Sonos, right? Um, so maybe that's why Sonos has been resurgent recently. But um, what what that brings back to me is that Apple came in at the high-end they did come in at the Sonos Bose end, yeah. and that is not what was going to ever win this game. And I'm, I'm just, I continue to be perplexed as to why, for their purposes, they thought that would win for them. You know what I mean? I do. Uh, and I imagine the reason why they thought that that would work for them is because they always kind of have this playbook, you know, which is to sell yeah. high and to sell to their, you know, most faithful users and that eventually they'll release sort of a downstream product. I mean, it's it's the, the Uber playbook as well. You know, start out with like Uber Black and figure out how it works with, you know, a more discerning clientele and then sort of go mass market. Um, but I think to your point, the way in which, and, and I think this is a, one of the things that came out of the conversation that we had then, was that the major flaw in that uh, strategy with the HomePod is that the HomePod is something that you only consume and experience when you're at home. So if you're a baller and you want to like spend your money on something, you probably want to spend it on something you're going to be seen in, you know, whether it's your Tesla or whether it's your AirPods, you know, like even like the AirPods Max uh, are are a better example of sort of wearing the Apple jewelry in social settings. Whereas the HomePod is a sort of functional thing that's a little bit like a heater, but makes noise instead. And you sort of put it, you know, someplace where, you know, it looks like a potter without plants and, uh, you know, you kind of like set it and forget it. So from that perspective, yes, of course, if you want to live in the Apple bubble, then it kind of makes sense. But in this case, I just don't think that that, that allure relative to the other products that were out there um, really uh, was compelling enough. So you, you just said something that almost like was exactly what I wanted to say, which is <laughs> the, the analogy of jewelry and yes. bling is imagine, remember when the Apple Watch first came out, right? Yep. And yep. there was the $10,000 $10, gold. gold. <laughs> right. Yep. So what is the Apple Watch now functionally? It is functionally a glorified accessory to your iPhone. 
Yep. It is essentially a more expensive Fitbit that does more things that is maybe nicer looking than a Fitbit and, and, and more, you know, stylish. Right. Yep. Yep. But I think that what happened here is kind of similar, which is that they, they approached a market that they thought there was a high end for, and there just really isn't. I just like, I don't know that the way that you approach buying like a home theater or a home speaker system really is the same uh, like as the consideration process for other Apple or computing products. Right. And so I guess like I, I, I have Sonos products and once I sort of went down that path, you know, for me, and I, it, wow, this is like so hard to unpack because there's so many layers of, you know, the music business and the voice assistant business and all the rest of it. Like one of the things that I love about my Sonos is how well it integrates with Spotify and I have, you know, 10 to 11 years of history on Spotify. If I were an Apple Music user, then perhaps I would find that the HomePod was compelling. But I just don't know that the overlap between people who, you know, are Apple Music users. And is by the, the same way, by the, the way, that could be the one thing that killed this product. For all we know, it was mm-hmm. being so stubborn ah, not to integrate right. Spotify. That could be the one thing. Do you, do you, okay. Do you think that they were stern or do you think that Spotify didn't want to do a deal? Which was it? It was probably oh. they want to push their own their own service, right? You know what? I actually I had never thought about that to this point. Yeah. Uh, given where Spotify is with them right now, maybe they withheld so, okay. the deal this whole time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, and the reason why I say this is because one of the things. So Spotify, I think, is very much a dark horse, and you actually brought this up uh, on I think Friday's show about the Rebel Alliance that is that seems to be forming, uh, which formed here on Clubhouse between Facebook, Shopify, and Spotify. So essentially, you've got those three kind of outsiders that are going up against kind of, you know, I don't know if it's the Apple Death Star or the Google Death Star. I bet the Death Star probably runs on Android. So anyways. It's just any any platforms. It, all platforms are Death Stars to them, essentially. Okay. Well, yes. And I guess what I, what I was thinking, though, is that one of the things that's really interesting about Spotify's service ambitions that we don't fully understand is what it looks like when they become more of an advertising player. And more specifically, what are they doing with their voice assistant? Uh, I don't know if it's, you know, hey, Spotify, you know, something like that sort of works, but they, they certainly allow you to search by voice. And there are increasing uh, pieces of evidence in their mobile apps, and especially for integrations on car um, uh, products, where you can start to talk to the Spotify assistant. And if they are moving in the direction of having voice interactive ads, whether they're in podcasts or whether they're in music, then that suggests that they need to actually be in a prime position to be able to receive voice commands through the speakers that they show up on. Now that's if, you know, Apple was like, no, like, like Siri's going to be the voice assistant de rigueur of, you know, the, the HomePod and all of our other Apple products. And that would actually put Spotify in a pretty, um, you know, defensive position. And so Spotify was the service that people wanted who had the HomePod and Apple wouldn't allow it or, or, or Spotify wouldn't allow it. Then that right there would be like, well, I don't want this because I can't even access the music that I want to play on this hugely expensive speaker that I just spent my money on. With everybody fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. 
Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. Don't know much about marketing? No sweat. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers thanks to Constant Contact's best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. I use this, and you should too. Tackle any challenge with Constant Contact's expert live customer support. Plus, everything's backed by their 30-day money-back guarantee, so get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. How do you make a password that's strong enough so no one will guess it and it's impossible for you to forget and do it for a hundred different sites and make it so everyone in your company can do the same without ever needing to reset them? Sounds impossible unless you have one password. More than any other product I've ever told you about, I can vouch 1,000% for 1Password. I can't live without it. 1Password makes strong security easy for your people and gives you the visibility you need to take action when you need to. Any device, any time, 1Password lets you securely switch between iPhone, Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign-ins. All you have to remember is the one strong account password that protects everything else. Your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. 1Password's award-winning password manager is trusted by millions of users and over 100,000 businesses from IBM to Slack. It beat out 40 other options to become Wirecutter's top pick for password managers. Right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at 1Password.com slash ride for your growing business. That's two free weeks at 1Password.com slash ride. Don't let security slow your business down. Go to 1Password.com slash ride. Um, can I go in a completely different direction? <laughs> Please. I think I made my point. It, basically, when I say that they came in high-end and these things are commodities, I think that, again, in, in that that piece we just played, uh, where, okay, now we can, all right, the HomePod Mini, we're going to turn on these things that will work with HomeKit. I think that has been especially Amazon's game from day one is like, we'll give you a $30 little, you know, tiny nubbin that you'll put in, in every corner of your room. Right. And so I, what perplexes me again is why Apple came in at the high end when the real way to do it is $30 nubbins that you put in every corner of your room that then mixes with your, I, I don't understand why Apple. No, because Apple put its nose the up home part. Yeah, and sorry. said, we're not going to sell a mass market product. And even if it fucks our strategy, we have to maintain, mm. you know, the Louis Vuitton, you know, of, of computing devices. And that's, okay. That's our brand. Okay. Let me ask you this. Yeah. How much of this is, as we're supposedly going to see this year, that finally we're going to get laptops that people will actually want to use again. How much of this is the D Johnny Iving mm. of Apple product design? Well, oh, that's a weird thing. To say. Like, I, I understand what you're saying in terms of, you know, adding back ports and taking away sort of this, I don't know, iconoclastic 
touch bar. Well, and- I'm saying it on the level of you just said we we won't do anything if it's not perfect. I see. Uh, no, that's not what I said. I mm. said that in order to maintain the perception of the brand as being high quality, Apple needs to sell products that are expensive, scarce. They are the the NFT of computers. I mean, computers and the hardware is made of sand. It's made of silicon. It's like the most abundant mineral, you know, or whatever on the planet. But Apple has figured out how to put an enormous premium on all of these devices and products through a mix of, you know, design and marketing and aesthetics and et cetera. Whereas, again, and it's funny because I feel like I'm sort of repeating myself in the post that I wrote uh, first about the AirPods, you know, which were the, the sex sticks that fuck your ears. And then... The other one where I wrote about how uh, Silicon Valley didn't understand the Amazon Echo uh, or the Echo Show, which basically was like this like uh, toaster oven sort of, you know, design aesthetic, but was like the MySpace of voice assistant products because it just wasn't trying that hard. And so it was super accessible to anybody that just wanted to have like an appliance in their house without feeling like it was like super high tech, high design, hoity-toity, you know, nose up in the air kind of thing. So I'm, I'm sort of supporting your point. That the reason why Apple can't get into the commodity hardware business where, and and I don't know if this is the same problem with their tile competitor, you know, and why that hasn't come out yet, but like their things have to be expensive. Like you have to buy, you know, like a a USB cable for like $29, you know, when it probably costs like three cents to make, right? Like that's sort of like the markup. And Amazon, meanwhile, just wants ubiquity. They want to have an Alexa assistant in every nook and cranny, you know, of your, of your, of your, your house, microwave, underwear, your, your, you know, your, your shower, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they gave it away, right? No one can build anything on Siri right now, except for Apple. And I think that that's a really important distinction in terms of the, the type of moats uh, and the structures of the castles that these companies have built. So when it comes to the home pod, it was a failure because they just couldn't meet the market where the market expects things to be now. Whereas the home pod mini at least possibly can get them there. I just don't know why anybody would really want it unless you're like a college student or something. And maybe you're extending your relationship with Siri. Like it just, it doesn't fit in overall, but let's bring it back to like what the story was about, which is about finding the sensor, not in the home pod, mm-hmm. but in the home pod mini. Therefore the home pod mini may actually sort of double, you know, be a double agent for a type of nest style, you know, competitor where, you know, Apple obviously sees that they need to win the home and to be, to have a, a useful, virtual assistant so that you can actually control your home with HomeKit. I don't know about you, but like I, um, I've set up my house and I've set up my partner's house as, um, like Alexa assistant, uh, smart homes. You know, we can control our life X bulbs and all the rest using the a named assistant. Whereas I've tried HomeKit and I can't fucking make sense of it. It doesn't make any sense. So I still think that Apple probably sees that they need to be in the home and they need to like, you know, move forward with their home kit kind of, uh, I don't know, there's a bunch of, what is it, Zigbee and a bunch of other protocols and standards for wiring up these devices, but they just don't seem to have the pedigree to be able to sort of get themselves down to the level where most consumers are at. Well, and I, I, I'll say this, I, I made no secret about the fact that I don't want Amazon in my home, especially because Amazon already knows all of my home spending, so I don't need to give them any more data. If, if any, forget about Facebook knowing everything about you. Forget about Google knowing everything about you. Amazon's going to know the most about us, especially our spending habits, what's happening inside our house, with our speakers and things like that. So I would welcome 
uh, HomeKit actually, if uh, didn't I do that story about um, the Logitech or whatever? Um, yeah, yeah, um, uh, doorbell thing like to replace the Ring doorbell. Yeah, I, I'd rather have an Apple doorbell because in theory, I believe them that they're not going to so, uh, sell me know, out. someday, someday we'll have a big conversation about this about like like this this sort of I don't know I don't know if it's like existential dread or just this fear or concern mm. that by Amazon knowing these things about you, it's going to somehow make your life worse. Whereas Mm -hmm. probably if they know more about you, they're going to give you better recommendations and they're just going to anticipate what your needs are. And you won't even need to like spend time ordering things. Or just be like, Oh, Brian, like you're running out of this in two days, ordered it for you. You know, if you don't want it, just leave it on your front door. We'll come get it, you know, because you have like an Amazon door lock or something. And like, you know what, maybe, maybe sometime this week, I'll talk about me trying to get an Amazon uh, credit card this week and then uh, canceling it and then realizing that that was dumb (laughs) because they already know my spending habits. Anyway, Um, well, let me, let let me, let me um, put a pin on this by asking you what you think of the HomePod specifically, whether it's a, a line that goes forward with just the mini or a HomePod sort of thing. Uh, is this a huge failure cul-de-sac? Is this, what do you think of Apple's efforts in the specifically the smart speaker space? You know, it's a really great question. And there, there are a couple different ways that I would approach it. One is just this question of, of the relationship that somebody has to music through the devices that they listen to it through. Sorry, there's a whole bunch of prepositions there or something. But like, does the things that you put in your ears or do the speakers that you have in your walls or next to your TV or in your kitchen or in the bathroom or in your car, do the speakers and the maker of the speakers make a difference in how you feel about the music that you're consuming? So I use Spotify in all sorts of different places. Right? I don't use Apple Music, um, but if I had Apple branded you know, speakers like a HomePod or a HomePod mini and I just had them throughout my house, does that give me a deeper sense of satisfaction and a, a greater feeling of affinity for Apple? I think the possibility, you know, the possible answer is, is yes. However, it, like Apple is clearly moving into entertainment and media in major ways, uh, you know, from Apple TV to, you know, and doing things with spatial audio. But maybe they've realized that the HomePod itself doesn't build enough of an emotional relationship that a commodity speaker is, you know, sufficient for most people's listening habits. And that owning the ear through the AirPods and the AirPods Pro and the AirPods Max is actually a much more intimate, private context that they need to really invest in. And so maybe between the HomePod and the AirPods Max, they realized that the AirPods Max is going to be a much better way to cement that relationship and to give people a sense of feeling, you know, of, of wearing their Apple blingness kind of in a social context. Uh, that the HomePod itself, as a large product, just doesn't really make sense economically. It failed in terms of their typical playbook, and so therefore they can move on from it. Um, I, again, I don't know where the HomePod Mini fits into this, but given that the name is, you know, has home in it it does imply that you could at least maybe use this as your Siri activator, um, you know, and then where it goes from, from there, I don't know. So yeah, I would, I would consider it to be, um, well, the HomePod as it, as it has been known, a lost cause. Um, and, and I don't know that they, you know, they got much out of it. Alex, do you want to, do you want to jump in here and offer anything? The thought that I had as you were speaking there was the, the comparison around the visual experience versus the audio experience. So mm. just as a consumer without analyzing this space deeply, 
for me, the top line, the HomePod uh, and the HomePod Mini, my headline was, well, it's just not going to work with Spotify in the way that I want to use Spotify. And mm. Spotify is my preferred music service. Um, and there's over 150 million paying subscribers that are also paying for Spotify. Um, now, when I go to video, like I can watch Netflix on any Apple device, I realize that the audio experience is different. And so I think it's like strategically, I understand why Apple would want to like make it difficult for competitors in spaces that want to play. But um, I think it's shit. Like, I mean, like it's bollocks. <laughs> I'm not going to buy an, a HomePod. Like, like until they do a deal with, with Spotify that just right. makes it easy for me to use Spotify. It's a very straightforward consumer decision. I just yeah. don't use Spotify. And I don't know, there's obviously more complexity than that. Um, but it's different. The only, the only thing is, like, why are they treating that differently compared to, for example, iTunes and movies versus Netflix and all the other video providers? I'm not sure mm. I understand that reasoning. I mean, it seems like, and I don't know this for sure, but, you know, when I've listened to Peter Kafka, there seems to be a lot of backend and backroom deals that go on that enable those streaming services on different platforms. Um, and, you know, there's some shady stuff that happens there for sure because of the money that's, you know, exchanging hands. And I think, you know, Brian, you've, I think, covered this around um, Roku and, uh, you know, of course, the whole brouhaha about um, HBO Max being available there or not being available. And so I forth. mean, to, pu- to put a, a really fine point on it, it's that there is so much money to be made because everyone cuts these deals where if on your platform, you sign up for HBO or Cinemax or Peacock or whatever, you get such a sweet cut of it that it's like, yeah. it's just raining money on video. And so I would speculate and, you know, someone like Kafka would know way more about this than I would. I feel like that that is not <laughs> the case. Like music is locked down. Like all of those deals, it's it's not this wide open sort of affiliate relationship where oh sure you can get a taste if you uh, it, we'll give you six months of the of this person's subscription if they stick around for six months. It just seems to be that in video it's raining money, and it I would I would speculate that in audio all of those deals have been negotiated ten years ago, twenty years ago, and there's not that much money to be made. Yeah, you know, one, so I had two more quick thoughts about this. Um, they're, they're quick. You know, Spotify recently just put out their um, loud and clear um, sort of uh, music advocacy site where they're putting out what the, I think it's um, loudandclear.spotify.com. Uh, and in it, they've got a bunch of sort of interesting, you know, anecdotes and some data and stuff like that. And they have this really, um, you know, pretty convincing video, um, as well as an infographic that shows where essentially like a hundred dollars, you know, of music streaming, um, money goes to, and, you know, a very small percentage of it ends up of course going to the artists. And there's all these people sort of in the middle that take their cut, um, and Spotify is, is among them. So it may be the case that, um, Spotify wasn't willing to do business with Apple because Apple wanted to charge, you know, access to, to basically like HomePod users and Spotify was a, we make so little money as it is. I mean, you know, relative to whatever they want to make. Um, that we're not going to put our product or uh, that's entirely possible. That's right? entirely possible. Yeah. Uh, so I think, and you know, the other way to think about it too, uh, actually, I don't know about this so much, but I was thinking like if I buy a home pod and I don't have access to a music service, then I'm more than likely going to take whatever's on my iPhone that connects to the, the home pod. I don't know. I mean, I, I assume that there's, um, I know you can do Bluetooth to the home pod, but at that point it's almost like worthless, right? Like you kind of want to have like a high quality signal, 
um, for transmitting audio, in which case you're probably going to want to use Apple's protocols in the back end. Exactly. So, I mean, that, that, was, yeah. that was where I landed. It's like, yeah. uh, I can get any any speaker, high-quality speaker, but why am I buying the, uh, the yeah. HomePod as part of the Apple ecosystem, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Like, if I can only connect Spotify via Bluetooth, well, what, what's the point? Yeah, yeah, totally. So I, I think on so many levels, it's just Apple's... Uh, I don't know. On the one hand, you could say arrogance. On the other hand, you know, adherence to certain standards um, means that it just, it was not a product that could really meet the market where the market demands it to meet them. So, okay. I think we can put that, that story to bed. Let's move on to, um, I think we've got two more weekend long reads, right? Yeah. Well, and here's, here's what I want to do because I I went through the whole room and it's all friends here. It's all people that, that at least follow me, including Owen, uh, who I met early on in my podcasting career. So, oh, and I'd love if you stepped up at any point, but no, no pressure. Um, so Chris, um, I can do, I can read, I can play both of these long read segments. Um, is there one, oh, thank you, Owen. And, and after I play these, please, please chip in. Um, is there one that you like more, the O'Reilly one or the uh, Moore's Law Sam Altman one? Um, you know, it's not so much about which I like more. I think it's about the statements that are contained in each. Again, that kind of, to me, speak to the future and the past. And these are two somewhat different views of where things are going, both relative to Silicon Valley, but also relative to the nature of, I would just say, the human experience, especially Mm -hmm. as relates to work and automation um, and what we're going to find ourselves spending time on and who's going to, I guess, benefit, you know, from this new world or not. Um, and by the way, if anybody wants to go check out those posts, if you go to my Twitter profile under the pinned tweet, I've linked to both of um, these these long reads. I don't know. They just like, you know, I, I ended up reading them on my Kindle because they are, you know, as it, as it suggests, long. Um, but I just, there was so much kind of, you know, richness and meatiness that I think I just want to kind of address them together and see where the conversation goes. And actually, you know, Owen, I think you might, I don't know if you've read them also, but have a, an interesting kind of historical perspective um, on kind of where we've been and where, where this stuff might be going. So here's what I'm going to do. There's no easy, since these aren't segments, this is from the long reads. It's going to be an abrupt thing. I'll play them both and it'll be an abrupt uh, kickback to the room. So here we go. For the weekend long read suggestions. And first up, let's do a couple of deep thinks from a couple of noted tech deep thinkers. Tim O'Reilly wades into the question of if Silicon Valley is over, and he identifies, as he puts it, four ways the party might indeed be coming to an end. Number one, consumer internet entrepreneurs lack many of the skills needed for the life sciences revolution that he feels is coming. Number two, internet regulation is upon us. Number three, Climate response is capital-intensive and inherently local. And number four, the end of what he calls the betting economy. Let me quote from point number one, though. Prediction. The nexus of machine learning and medicine, biology, and material science will be to the coming decades what Silicon Valley has been to the late 20th and early 21st century. Why might this mark the end of Silicon Valley as we know it? First, the required skills are different. Yes, machine learning, statistical analysis, and programming are all needed, but so is deep knowledge of relevant science. 
The hubs where that knowledge can be found are not the special province of Silicon Valley, suggesting that other regions may take the lead. Second, many of the markets where fortunes will be made are regulated. Navigating regulated markets also takes skills that are conspicuously missing in Silicon Valley. Finally, as Theranos demonstrated so vividly, it is harder to sustain a hype balloon in a scientific enterprise than in many of the markets where Silicon Valley has prospered. Many Silicon Valley investors have been lucky rather than smart. They may not do so well in a world where capital must be directed towards solving hard problems rather than toward winning a popularity contest, end quote. And next, Sam Altman has an essay up saying that advances in AI could lead to a Moore's Law-like revolution for basically everything, quote, The best way to increase societal wealth is to decrease the cost of goods, from food to video games. Technology will rapidly drive that decline in many categories. Consider the example of semiconductors and Moore's Law. For decades, chips became twice as powerful for the same price about every two years. In the last couple of decades, costs in the U.S. for TVs, computers, and entertainment have dropped, but other costs have risen significantly, most notably those for housing, health care, and higher education. Redistribution of wealth alone won't work if these costs continue to soar. AI will lower the cost of goods and services because labor is the driving cost at many levels of the supply chain. If robots can build a house on land you already own, from natural resources mined and refined on-site, using solar power, the cost of building that house is close to the cost to rent the robots. And if those robots are made by other robots, the cost to rent them will be much less than it was when humans made them. Similarly, we can imagine AI doctors that can diagnose health problems better than any human and AI teachers that can diagnose and explain exactly what a student doesn't understand. Moore's Law for Everything should be a rallying cry of a generation whose members can't afford what they want. It sounds utopian, but it's something technology can deliver, and in some cases already has. Imagine a world where, for decades, everything, housing, education, food, clothing, etc., became half as expensive every two years, end quote. So I just, I don't know, like these two pieces taken together, you know, represent, represent these, these future-facing, you know, visions that are clearly technologically, you know, driven and enabled and drenched. And there are huge ramifications for humans and the human experience and the way in which we conceive of and perform work and also the types of education and skills that we need to be giving people. And one, it's just like, oh my God, we are just like so not prepared. And the pace at which this is going to come at us, you know, is, is sort of like climate change. It's sort of going to be upon us and we're going to, need to adapt very quickly. And, you know, if we've learned anything just by sort of observing what has happened with this, you know, pandemic, we are not, we do not live in a sort of coherent, you know, humanistic society where we kind of all have each other's back and realize that we're all in this together. It's, it's quite the opposite of that. And yet, you know, what Sam is proposing is that through, technological innovation and artificial intelligence being deployed specifically the need for human labor, which is in some ways, you know, uh, I don't know, like faulty or just kind of unreliable in some respects um, will be replaced with more methodical, you know, machines that are really good at doing the same thing over and over again and getting better and better at it. Um, But the humans will be necessary, at least in my optimistic view, to be better at synthesizing information and to see cross linkages between different areas and fields and to put those sort of artificial intelligences together to create combinatorial outcomes that the machines themselves would never be able to come up with on their own. And I think what, what Tim O'Reilly is also pointing to is that the things that made 
Silicon Valley kind of, you know, have its own, again, gold rush style economic boom for the last 10 to 15 years may not necessarily be the thing that get, you know, keeps us going because we're so focused on the way in which this boom has worked that we're not looking to, you know, again, he, he points to like the life sciences and granted he's, you know, quite close to that world, um, you know, or, or the green revolution, um, that we're not actually well prepared for the opportunities that are going to come out of that. And so there will be a bit of a dispersion um, as these technologies that have been developed out in Silicon Valley um, become more widely understood, more widely deployed, and more widely adopted in more and more places. So it just, I don't know, it, it just gave me a real pause to kind of like really think about where we are, what we've just gone through, and what's probably going to happen in the next five to 10 years. Hey, Owen. Hey there. Um, <laughs> thanks for any, thanks any for thoughts on that. <laughs> So many thoughts. I'll start with the Sam Altman piece because I've, I've read that more closely. Um, I, I thought it was a really beautiful kind of piece of abstract art. Um, as, you know, <laughs> like, a, like an NFT or something. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, someone, someone could sell this, you know, sell this for millions and it's similarly valueless. Uh, the reason why it's valueless, is because <laughs> it brings the, um, you know, the utter naivete of, uh, of Silicon Valley about politics fully to bear. Just an example. If you read through Sam Altman's piece, he says, "Oh, sure, this you know this grand idea to tax uh, to tax wealth and um, and land will probably cause property values to drop fifteen percent." Well, that is a dagger in the heart of the middle class. Now, it may not be a rational dagger, but it will be an emotional dagger, and no one is going to vote for that. No one's going to vote for that. You know. If you know anyone who dares will get voted out in the next election, um, and you know, yes, like Altman is completely right. I'm I'm the son of an economist. Everything he's saying makes economic sense. Like, yes, there will be a 15 percent drop in land values as as people kind of grasp the impact of the tax, and then they will bounce up because of the general kind of economic um, uh, you know rising tide that AI will release. But we are not as a society good at long-term thinking and delayed gratification. And you just don't drop people's home values 15% and expect them not to freak out. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot of kind of beauty uh, and simplicity to what Altman is proposing. There's absolutely no realism. And like to push back on that, because I, I, on the one hand, I agree with you that if we were relying on either rational choice or voting by the humans, mm-hmm. To, to go in that path, it's not going to happen. But I think one of the things that if, you know, again, if you read those two pieces sort of together, and I realize you might be less familiar with the things that Tim O'Reilly is talking about, um, it just feels that some of these things are going to start happening to us, you know, and there's already this insane type of financialization that seems to be happening, obviously, in the digital realm. Um, and, you know, I don't quite know how that's going to change things or shift things or shift power dynamics, because we're sort of minting money out of nowhere, which will give at least some set of people enormous power and influence that they haven't had before and they can just you know start fucking things up because why not you know because they have the ability to so i'm not saying it's good or bad i don't really have like a judgment about that it seems to me that there's going to be changes that are going to happen regardless i i sort of support your thesis that you know people who have wealth are not going to vote themselves out of wealth but i still think it's going to happen to people all the same and so i think that's the thing where there seems to be some determinism um, in the move towards increasing adoption and use of artificial intelligence, especially in industries um, where humans are just going to be kind of, you know, 
pushed out of some of these positions that they've been in before, and there will be a redistribution of wealth towards different things? Or do you think that that's not possible? I mean, I, I think that... I, I think that the effects of AI are, you know, absolutely, you know, those are absolutely real. Like every, you know, all of that is absolutely real. The question is like, how do we bridge the gap? How do we as a society make the leap? Uh, I will say the thing that's given me some um, optimism about basic income income is the pandemic because economic impact Mm -hmm. payments are basic income. I mean, they are, they just are. And they have made it societally acceptable. It's gone from like, a really weird out there concept that some people in Silicon Valley are talking about to yep. something that pretty much, you know, everyone has now experienced. Uh, I think the latest, uh, you know, the very last uh, EIP was means tested, but the, yep. the first couple rounds weren't. Right. And, you know, just like making it real in that way has kind of opened up some possibilities there. Because well, and, and you know, the, the child tax credit, yeah. in addition to that, I think is also a really good, you know, kind of test of this in a major way where it's like, you know, you've got kids, you know, it's, I mean, it, it, it will support so many, you know, parents, you know, obviously who are often, you know, women and who bear most of the brunt of uh, the sort of pandemic economic uh, impact that hopefully that will actually kind of rebalance uh, some of the, the the scales here. Obviously, it's not like a permanent fix or something, but it's and it, it's it's obviously got a time horizon as well. To your point about kind of dipping our toe into the UBI um, waters, it really does feel like this is the first major test where we've kind of gotten around some of the early reactions to at least allow people to feel it, and they're like, "Oh, actually, this is this is kind of nice. I kind of like this." The problem is that we've been borrowing. To make yeah, this true payments, right sure. on the on the argument that this is this is a crisis this is a one-time cost but um you know the flip side is we do have to fund the payments somehow and um i i just well, but i mean I, to, to sam's point though right if we're either you fund the payments or you lower the cost of things over time through artificial intelligence and, and, and automation and i don't like that's weird because then people aren't making money but if the cost of things are going down thanks to this moore's law for everything then maybe what we have to pay back actually isn't quite as great because the cost to produce those things isn't what it was previously. People, again, like complete failure by Sam Altman to think about human psychology. Fear of loss is much greater than hope of gain. Yeah, yeah. And yep. deflation, like yep. prolonged deflation, if people hate inflation, they hate deflation much more. And by the way, deflation is deeply uh, anti-progressive. Now, yep. you balance that, of course, with the... Um, you know, with the basic income, but still, it's not going to feel good if, you know, like just, you know, like, okay, your iPhone is cheaper. Great. Your Coursera courses are cheaper. Great. Uh, you know, but like your house is cheaper again, like psychologically that is not going to fly with the American middle class, the way people have been, you know, trained for centuries culturally to value land, to value property. Um, it just requires, like, you know, Sam is smart. He needs to talk to some, like, basic behavioral economists. He needs to talk to a few psychologists who have studied, you know, like, wealth and sentiment around, um, you know, property and income and, you know, and investment. Um, and I think he'll come back, you know, he, he could well come back from that with a much sounder plan. But this, this the plan that he's uh, espoused is a, complete and utter 
psychological and political failure. <laughs> Sounds like we need to get uh, Noah Smith back up yeah. here. Um, let me let me bring the O'Reilly thing into this because, um, I, again, I feel like we're kind of all shitting on the Altman piece, which I thought was great and interesting, but it kind of felt to me like a Kurzweil piece. <laughs> like, mm. you know, I read the age of spiritual machines and that's why I believe in tech, <laughs> you know, like, and, and, you know, look, I think his time horizon was still 2030. So there's still time to go, but just by putting the oh, Moore's law for everything on stuff that felt a little too cute to me. Right. I'm more interested in O'Reilly's first point in his piece, which is that it's not that software is not going to be important. It's that his posit that life sciences, biology, chemistry, and things like that are going to be more important for the next 20 to 30 years. And so it's not going to be possible for, you know, um, well, it would be possible for a kid in a dorm room if they, if they're a, a biochemist or something like that to create the next trillion dollar company. But his point was essentially that what he sees coming for the next few decades in terms of what will really put a dent in the universe is going to be something that is not going to be just create a better social app or a different kind of social app. And there's going to be different skill sets involved. And that felt more plausible to me than the cute idea that there's going to be a Moore's law that will make education cheaper. That'll make all, all of these things cheaper that, that Altman says. Um, what what do you think of that? Yeah. Can, can, can you just wind up, wind me up and let me go here? Because okay, <laughs> I mean the like this is a, this is an example of another another guy who lives in his Web 2.0 bubble and like has not even wandered around the Bay Area talking you know talking to people outside the internet industry. Where is the largest biotech hub in the United States? It's San Francisco. By the way, runner up San Diego, also in California. Like you know. <laughs> How, like the the coronavirus fight is happening right here um, in you know in and around San Francisco, especially in South San Francisco, uh, where Genentech is based. Um, Gilead, also Bay Area. Where was CRISPR invented? UC Berkeley. I mean, come on! Like the the idea that the Bay Area, you know, forget Silicon Valley, but the Bay Area mm. is, turns out is really good at biotech. And when you put those together, when you put uh, biotech and computers together into bioinformatics, like this is the, the natural center of that. Now, again, the pandemic has put all of this into doubt because things that could go virtual now have gone virtual. But I think that people still will post pandemic want to gather. I, I think there will be like natural clusters and centers. And by the way, the only sector of commercial real estate that is working in the Bay Area right now is biotech labs. I mean, for obvious reasons, but that work generally has to be done in person. So that may, you know, that may actually not be for, you know, you know, for any, like any stretch of the imagination, that may always be physical work done in a physical place. So I want to just actually add a little more context to the O'Reilly piece. As I know you're less familiar with kind of like the contents. One of the things that I think um, he's pointing out 
is the way in which the funders of the consumer internet revolution and consumer apps and things like that um, sort of are willing to fund things because they're imagining, you know, a 10 to 100x kind of outcome in some set number of years. In other words, the game of building kind of consumer social products, um, technology products, is fairly well understood and known relative to the life sciences world where, and and I'm sort of reading between the lines, I think, a little bit, where there's sort of a more of a collaborative spirit um, in sharing different lab results and in working in a different way than what a lot of, you know, move fast and break things, you know, kind of companies are used to. And right. So let the me... skill set for that, to me, you know, having grown up on the East Coast, feels like a place like Boston is a little more suited to that type of long-term gestation of, of life science evolution and innovation than what Silicon Valley wants, which is typically, you know, to put a bunch of money in and get out relatively quickly and sort of move it at that cadence. Right. Go from zero to a billion users in 18 months. I, I maybe, yeah. maybe the way I was reading that uh, was, and maybe he's speaking to a specific audience, which might just be the, the, the VC audience, which, you know, so it, this is really inside baseball stuff. But also I, I think it, it, it's speaking to founders too, in the sense that it's, I, what I took away from that first point of that piece, and there's four points in that piece, so there's other things you can take from this, is that I think he was trying to say there's a different skill set. And, and you're right. He was saying, and, and maybe I agree with you, Owen, that like he's saying, well, that's not in, in the Bay Area. And I agree with you. you know, I, I, I know people in, in biotech, and they're all in the Bay Area. Um, but I think the main takeaway that I had was that there's a different skill set in terms of how founders need to think about it and and the skills that founders would have to bring to the table if this is going to be the next several decades and also like like chris is saying um not the timeline and also the expectations it's not that you can go from um a a tam of zero to a billion users in 18 months it's it's more that you have to invest the time to make these things happen well, and then also be real, right? Because he brings up both Theranos and WeWork. And essentially his point there is, and, and this is sort of like to his last point about the casino style or casino capitalism, you know, is that you essentially are building on prior rounds of funding to fuel growth that is somewhat vaporous in order to just, you know, get sort of the jet fuel exhaust needed to get into like the, the stratosphere. And in the life sciences world, you know, you like, again, sort of Theranos being the anti-example, you have to have real demonstrated uh, like proof that the thing that you're building and deploying actually works and that it's been tested and that that just takes it slower and the multiples are less because it's not, you know, all virtualized. So I think that's kind of, again, like what he's talking about, which is Brian, to your point, like the skill set that's needed, which is more sort of an attitudinal adjustment about the way in which those types of innovations will occur relative to what we've become used to in terms of, you know, putting $10 million in and getting $100 million out like five years later. And Owen, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm jumping in. I, let me jump in real quick because I just need to remind you that I do want to use this this weekend on the podcast. So we are recording. <laughs> um, yes, so absolutely. Keep that in mind. Fun. And Alex as well. Thanks. Go ahead. Hey, thank um, you. So, so oh, the, yes, go ahead. Uh, sorry, sorry, did I interrupt? Let's be real for a minute. Most guys would wear a t-shirt every day of their lives if they could. The problem is that most t-shirts are not acceptable to wear at work or out on a hot date night. But today's sponsor, Cuts 
has finally changed that. Cuts t-shirts are such high-quality, wrinkle-free, and so buttery soft that you can look like you're dressing up even when you're dressing down. Yeah, you heard that. Wrinkle-free. You never have to substitute comfort for fashion ever again. If you see me in a t-shirt, it's likely one from Cuts. I'm also a huge fan of their AO five-pocket pants, the right sort of step-up from jeans without going all the way into dress pants, like literally my ideal Venn diagram of professional-looking but comfortable feeling. When you touch something from Cuts, you can immediately feel the quality. Their proprietary fabric blends are ridiculously soft and breathable, they don't wrinkle, and they look way more expensive than they actually are. For a limited time, our listeners get 20% off your entire order when you use code RIDE at checkout. That's 20% off your order at CutsClothing.com with promo code RIDE. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Experience the perfect blend of style and comfort with Cuts Clothing. CutsClothing.com, promo code RIDE for 20% off. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity. But user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that has its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months. Or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it all works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride, collide.com slash ride. Alex, go ahead. Um, so the one thought in this conversation on the, um, uh, on the O'Reilly point is that there are centers of excellence around the world that aren't San Francisco, that aren't the Bay Area, um, that I think the Bay Area does a fantastic job of identifying that's important at this moment in time, and how do we create a center of gravity or the intersection between that thing that is important plus the things that the Bay Area is really good at doing. For example, Mathematics has always been important. Well, let's say for the last three, four hundred years. New versions of mathematics, centers of excellence of mathematics and how they are applied can vary in geographical distance and over time. Example, Cambridge, etc., like quantum mechanics and this, that, and the other. Okay, got it. What the Bay Area is really good at doing is like synthesizing these different um let's say, disciplines and uh, experts and drawing and integrating what is required to create commercially successful businesses given the advent of the internet and computing and blah, 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 blah. So I I understand what O'Reilly is getting at, but I'm not entirely sure that just because 
you know, some place in the universe, some place on earth has become really good at what is the next big thing necessarily means that that place then is going to be the center of excellence of where the commercialization of that and the application of that innovation or that thinking could occur. So um, let me me fold in like his third piece and maybe we'll kind of wrap around this topic because I think this is like the big area where we don't know a lot about what's going to happen. But I do think that Brian, I don't know if you mentioned it or someone else mentioned it uh, in one of the podcasts I was listening today, but it's the part about regulation. So when you think about like, who is Tim O'Reilly talking to? Well, you know, obviously um, he is connected to, to Jen Palka, who does a lot of work in politics and in general is connected to a lot of people who, you know, are funders, you know, in that world. And so when he's talking about regulation, one of the things I think he's also sort of pointing out is that uh, Silicon Valley obviously has gotten much, much better about lobbying and about having their interests you know, represented in Washington. But from a regulation perspective, I don't think that a lot of the folks who are used to investing in Silicon Valley companies really like regulation very much. And if that's going to come down the pipe and be something that is going to be part of the business environment moving forward, then that also requires a different level of, I don't, I don't know what to say. I mean, I, I guess I've gotten a little bit like cynical, but you know, whether it's discipline or whether it's, uh, I don't know, greasing palms and, you know, I, like you sort of start to understand like how the en- energy industry is the way it is um, given all the regulations there in order to get things done. But putting that stuff aside, but Moving. Chris, bi- biotech is highly regulated and, exactly. and highly financed by venture capital. I mean, there's a huge, um, you know, there, there's a huge amount of biotech venture capital that gets spent in the I, Bay so Area. So really one question and, that I would ask is whether or not the people who have invested, who are venture capitalists, who invest in biotech, also invest in consumer startups. And it seems to me, and I'm not saying, and I, I will take your point, that there's plenty of biotech in Silicon Valley uh, and in the Bay Area, um, but whether or not... The, the type of funding that goes on there, you know, is the same and whether or not the people who are used to funding or having consumer type outcomes and results are going to be as, uh, I guess, amenable to a regulated or highly regulated environment, given all the things that seem to be going on in Washington when it comes to social media, social networks, the big platform search and the rest. I mean, it, I would say looking at that, if you're worried about regulation, you could invest in biotech where there's a stable, well-understood uh, regulatory regime, or you could invest in social media where it's all up in the air. I mean, I think I think a sensible person would take the biotech bet. I, I'd also say mm-hmm. when I started covering this stuff in the 90s, mm-hmm. um, I knew a lot of VC firms that were like more or less evenly split between um, consumer technology investments and biotech investments. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they were generally different people in different teams, but like that's that's true of any kind of specialty. And like, just the fact that like it's not you know your your internet investor is not making biotech bets i think that's what you would expect and want i guess i'm um, just trying to parse out like what like tim seems to be talking about when it comes to I, diagnosing the lack of a certain set of skills for people in like the bay area you know when it comes to life sciences and so maybe maybe you're right like maybe those people are already here and he's not talking to them and he's only talking to his web2o buddies and he's like hey web2o buddies you're not used to living in a world with, with regulation. Uh, you're used to the world of casino capitalism. So you should, you know, get ready for, uh, you know, a world of learning very quickly um, about how to operate in a very different space. I, I think that, you know, I think that VC firms fire some of their internet investors or let them retire a very wealthy 
uh, from their from their prior yeah, bets. True. And they hire some biotech people, and the yeah. the firms and the funds and their limited partners are just fine. And the institutional knowledge about you know like remember um, you know VC firms also help with management and hiring and yeah. you know yeah. and and sales and like there, there's a lot of generalizable skills there. But yeah, I, I mean, I do think that there will be some some VCs who get out of the business and some VCs who get into the business or some VCs who have better returns, you know, like will the Midas list be heavily weighted towards biotech in, you know, possibly five years or 10 years? Um, quite possibly. Yeah. Yeah. That and, and maybe yeah. green tech. Um, hey, so, Chris, I also uh, think Brian, you know, and yeah. Owen, I, I have to leave, but before okay. I leave, I just want to say, Please. do this more. I'm loving it. I huh. love your analysis. I love your show. Thank you. I'm going to encourage you, you to do it more frequently. Yes. And uh, and you've touched on some stuff that is like definitely worthwhile of uh, deeper topics. It's a single topic of something that you just suggest or mm. want to do. So I'm going to encourage you. So thank you very much. I'm going to say really appreciate that. Love you guys. Thanks. Bye. Thanks so much, Alex. Thank you. And, you know, we do want to open it up. Um, uh, you know, we got a few more minutes. If anybody uh, who's been with us for the full hour and a half here um, would like to, to chime up, you know, raise your hand, um, come up, either ask a question about something that we discussed today, whether it was about Dispo or about uh, the HomePod or what was the middle story that we talked about? I don't even remember anymore. Um, or anything else, you know, related to tech and the news of the day. You got questions for us. Now would be a great time. Um, Otherwise, we'll start to sort of like, you know, close down the room, but um, let us know what you think. And um, yeah, Brian, any, any other sort of like thoughts about this, this general topic? I don't know to what degree, I guess I just am feeling like it is going to be, it, 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 I say this all the time where it's these, these things that I've been hearing for 30 years are right around the corner, <laughs> whether it be VR or AI or self-driving cars or whatever. I just feel in my gut right now that it is going to be <laughs> biosciences. Not that it hasn't been, um, uh, but more than AI. Like if we're if we're comparing the two, that's sort of why the Altman piece wasn't as compelling to me as um, the O'Reilly piece because I am feeling. And maybe hey, look, this is a confirmation bias, which is like, oh my god, m mRNA <laughs> gave mm. us these vaccines, you know. Yep. So maybe that's what it is, but. Um, uh, yeah, I, like, sorry, I keep going. Oh, I, I was going to say, you know, uh, we need more Modernos and fewer Theranoses for sure. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. Totally agree. I mean, I will, you know, so to, to build Brian off, off your point and to try to maybe do a better job of encapsulating why reading these pieces and, and, you know, funny enough, I read these pieces when I was in Miami um, and I was on South beach and I was, <laughs> amongst a bunch of spring breakers and um, ended up attempting to get a rental car to leave spring break, uh, to leave Miami, to go visit with my mom, which is what I'm doing now. And I had this horrific experience. I mean, it wasn't horrific. It wasn't like anybody died. It wasn't like, you know, the worst thing in the world. I'm going to write about it because one of the things that I think is really hard to do when you're in the midst of these sea changes, you know, it is, you know, when they talk about boiling the frog, I think it's, it is an important analogy because there are so many of these grass shoots or pea shoots that are coming up that represent all, all the things that you described as happening, you know, it's being 30 years in the making and it's like, suddenly they're here and we're like, God, why did it take so long? Or like, you know, what is going to happen? And then it's upon us. And specifically, I suppose as I'm reading these pieces about 
the world of automation and AI. And then I'm reading Tim O'Reilly's piece about, you know, we're not ready and we don't have the skill set and, you know, casino capitalism is not going to work. And there's all this regulation that's coming. I have this experience where I show up to pick up my Hertz rental car and I'm just going to go into this for a little bit. Cause I think it's, I don't know. It just, it's so captures a moment, like a, a vignette of this modern experience that is in the midst of being born. You know, I arrive, I don't know, at like 5 PM. And it turns out the office of this Hertz rental agency on South beach closes at 5 PM. I get there to get my car, um, planning to drive that evening, the four and a half hours or whatever, to get to the, the West side of Florida and the office is closed. Now, this office is run by a human, and this human has decided to leave the office early. Well, okay, so I don't know what to do, but typically I'm used to the experience of Hertz when I go to the airport. I literally stroll up, I open the app, uh, you know, I don't really even t- talk to anybody. I pick a car that I want, and I drive out. I show some of my driver's license, and I'm on my way. And it's like this almost like perfect world of all of these things happening with automation and digital identity and digital payments and it's, it's great <laughs> to be quite frank. And in this case, the system completely broke down. So I end up trying to call customer service first for Hertz and the entire app experience and the entire customer service experience is driving me to their website. They're like, Oh, you know, do you have a current reservation? Are you want to talk about like future reservation? Do you want to extend the reservation? Like they have a bunch of use cases and obviously like issues that people call about. None of them are, we are available to take your phone call. Somehow I manipulate the system into getting in touch with somebody. I start describing, you know, my predicament. I'm like, just open the garage. Let me in. I'll get my car. I'll be on my way. No problem. No harm, no foul. And of course the customer service person is in some place in another part of the world and simply can't do anything. Like the office is locked. The garage is locked. They can't bring the person back for me to get my car. And so I'm screwed. Now, the reason why this was a big deal to me is because this is spring break and there are no hotel rooms that are available. So it's, you know, I've been on the phone now for 45 minutes and I'm starting to freak out because I don't know where I'm going to stay. You know, I've got my stuff. The hotels are all booked and I'm screwed. So I'm starting to think like, maybe I need to like, you know, get in touch with like, you know, Suarez or whatever, like Mayor Suarez, maybe he's got a place that I can go. Or like, I got other friends in Miami, but it's just like a really shitty situation. Finally, you know, after the, the customer service person is like, okay, whatever, uh, you know, just come back tomorrow. You can pick up your car. I'm like, okay, fine. I, very narrowly find someone who had just checked out of their hotel room earlier that day. And I was able to like grab their room for the evening. So fortunately I had a place to stay, but I'm like exhausted. I'm angry. I'm like, uh, like I'm having my own internal meltdown. And so the next morning I of course walk down to Hertz and this is mind you, this is like a mile, you know, both ways. So I end up walking six miles back and forth between my hotel and Hertz. Um, I get to the office and this person who was there and this is around 11 AM or whatever. is like, Oh, we, we gave away your car. I'm like, what do you mean you gave away my car? Like yesterday Hertz told me to come get my car today and it's gone. And I was like livid. And I was like, well, you need to like get me a car. He's like, well, I can't, you need to call customer service. I'm like, what are you talking about? You work for Hertz. So there was like this cascade of increasing failures because I didn't follow this golden path and the human was getting in the way and was completely unempowered. And I'm like, this whole system is completely broken and needs to be rebuilt in an automated system where there is just, I don't know, like, I don't know what it is, but it just occurred to me that you have this totally disempowered person at the end of all aspects of this um, massive conglomeration of a corporation that can't help me. They can't do anything for me because the system has been programmed in such a way so that he can't help um, the customers. And I guess like when I think about that, 
I started to think about this person who I'm interacting with, who is unable to help me, who probably doesn't want this job, who ended up leaving, you know, cause the office then closed at noon. And so I couldn't go back and actually talk to him again and get any help anyways. Um, and what the role of that per- of that job is and why that's a job that someone should even hire for. You know, I sort of like, maybe in the abstract, understand it, you know, humans need things to do, but it just didn't seem like any of the incentives were aligned in keeping that person in that role to do something that they clearly didn't want to do that wasn't actually helping the customer and made all of us feel like assholes. And so I don't know exactly what the solution is, but it seems like that's one of those examples where, uh, and, and again, like one of the things that I was experiencing when I was calling Hertz was I, and actually I ended up DMing them on Twitter and I ended up, you know, talking to bots. So I guess my point is it's all happening. It's here. There are parts of this, of this new apparatus of the matrix being built out live that if you just sort of think back, what was my experience like two years ago or three years ago? And what is it now? You'll realize that it's already here, but we don't know how to recognize it because it's happening slowly and gradually. And one moment from the next, you know, some piece of the scene has been swapped out and exchanged for some automated other piece of thing. And I think that's the thing that we really need to be starting to like take a look at and think about. Are these things fit for purpose? Are they actually being designed to get the job done? Or are they band-aids on top of band-aids on top of band-aids because we don't have the will or the guts to redesign these systems to actually work for and with us where we're actually augmenting the human's ability to make things happen as opposed to taking it away from them. Anyways, Chris, that's I have a, I have a, and yeah. Chris, I have a simpler explanation for what happened to you. <laughs> Please. Miami is over. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say you encountered Florida man. Okay. I did, yeah. I, well, I almost became Florida man. Um, mm. So yeah. Anyways, well, listen, uh, and as as you as we've discussed a lot, um, I I was born in Florida, so I can speak ill of Florida. But I'd also say this: I mean, not to not to. I hope this isn't insulting to you, but like mm-hmm. uh, the fact that you expect things like oh, the car to be waiting for you and things like that, <sighs> like like what sort of I've been in world a lot do I of, live in? What sort of I've been in a lot of Hertz places in like northern Michigan where it's not only is the car not waiting for you, like you know, you have to be there at the right time. And by the way, it's not just Hertz, it's all of the car rental places. See, so I'm just saying my point, right? Yeah. Like I've had the experience in various airports, like specifically like, you know, San Francisco and other places where I'm living in the world of automation and where the door is just open for me. Right. And and granted, like, you know, I'm coming from like a privileged place and you know, I have access to these services. But what I was reading in Sam Altman's piece was that that world will become increasingly available, at least to some larger percentage of the population. And the thing that we trade for that is, you know, having people manning those booths, you know, for hours of the day where, you know, I walked in the office and like the guy wasn't wearing a mask. It was just like this weird sort of like, you know, human experience where there Florida, was this, Florida, you know, Florida, I, I know, okay, Florida, <laughs> sure. You know, but well, no. Let, again, tell me I I'm wrong. Though. I, tell me that the, those places in bumfuck forever aren't going to be replaced by an automated system in a matter of it's years. It's not. It's not bumfuck. And I hope you won't <laughs> think that I'm I'm insulting you. What I'm saying is, is like you know, you know, shit, man. I, I'm we're not, gonna I'm not call insulted s- because I have just like a higher standard, uh, and I suppose. Yeah, but when you're saying that, like the <laughs> the humans involved in the machine do not have agency. I mean, that's been the case for a long, long time. Work in a call center, work in customer service behind uh, a cash register. You don't have agency to do anything beyond the five or six things that well, then, you're so, supposed so to do by the manual. That we are, we are destined 
to be in this world forever where we need to just continue to recalibrate our expectations lower because that I just, um, okay. Fine. Shameless, uh, shameless bug here. Um, I, I recently started uh, a new role at protocol hmm. um, where I'm overseeing enterprise software coverage. Hmm. And I, I actually see a lot of exciting things like robotic process automation, yeah. which essentially uh, observes people using software hmm. and attempts to kind of bridge these later ourselves with you know how you're talking to a customer rep and they oh i've got to switch to a different <laughs> right uh, you know so actually applying ai to kind of the the software nightmare that we've created um could get us out of these situations yeah well i mean machine learning basically is reinforcement learning right so essentially if the if the outcome that you wanted happens then you reinforce that that path or that route and so in this case, I just feel like this was like a, a Pachenko dead end that clearly the system needs to you know, avoid. And it could have been avoided altogether by one, having an office that doesn't close. And how do you have an office that doesn't close? Well, you can automate it. You know, you sort of treat it like if, if cars could be checked out, like you can like use an ATM 24 hours a day because you can walk into a, you know, a door by putting in your credit card. Like, why can't, I mean, granted, you know, cars are, you know, moving, you know, killing vehicles. But like, you know, besides that point, if you were able to then, of course, have an, I don't know, like. Obviously, this should have been a self-driving vehicle that just took, you know, that, that <laughs> came to you. I, I ended right. up hiring a Lyft to drive me four hours all the way across Florida because there were no cars available for rent in Miami. That's That was the end of the story. So, yes, well, a self-driving car will, would have been a much better solution. I'll posit one more Occam's razor, which is that Hertz is a terrible company who I've dealt with for years too. Another company that was destroyed by um, uh, private equity, uh, yes. basically taking the asset and, and driving it into the ground. So that's yeah. a possibility as well. Yeah. And I, I believe actually one of the things that I, I, I'm reading, The Monopolists, I think, uh, is the book that I'm reading or something. And it turns out that there's really only like three car rental companies and they're all owned by the same conglomerate. It's just like liquor and all the other things. So we we're sort of like surrounded by monopolies anyways. Um, and so one of the things that I asked them, I was like, Hey, aren't you owned by like another larger car conglomerate? Can't you find like another car at like enterprise or like sixth or like one of these others? And, um, and then they hung them up. Me. So, yeah. Hey, um, I, I, we do have to close it up, but Owen, I did want to, I did want to ask you, you, you just jumped to protocol uh, this month. Or last month, or how, how, where are you these days? Oh, yeah, I started March first. Um, went from uh, pretty much straight from the Chronicle to wow. Protocol. Congrats! Awesome. Thank you. Well, looking forward to tons of great stuff from you from the from Protocol. Where, where can uh, you okay. find your work there? I'm sorry. Where can I, where can we find your work there? Oh, sorry. It's a uh, protocol.com. And um, I've got a great team on enterprise. Covering he's the, he's the head muckety muck. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. oh, I see. protocol.com. Oh, mm-hmm. okay, great. Means, you know, it just means I, you know, rewrite headlines and, you know, work in the CMS. It's very, it's very important stuff. You are part of the arrangement machine. So you can either be, you know, part of, for the humans or for the algorithms. You know, it's up to you. I mean, I, maybe I'm a bot. Maybe I'm a bot. <laughs> uh, Owen, thanks thanks for jumping on with this. And again, uh, you were someone that was very kind to me at the beginning of my uh, podcasting adventure. So um, uh, great to talk to you. I love ride home. Awesome. Thank you. 
All hey, right, Chris, guys. you want to want to bring it home? Yep. So you've been listening to the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience um, on Monday, March 22nd. Um, we've covered a bunch of things all over the tech world and gotten deep into the phil- philosophy of uh, who knows, you know, people in Silicon Valley and beyond. Um, hopefully you enjoyed this conversation and we will be back again soon, taking the best clips from Brian's Ride Home uh, Tech Meme show. And um, yeah, thanks everybody for for saying hi. Um, if you have any feedback, you can check us out. Um, our, our links are in our bios or no, our bios are, I don't even know how to say it anymore. Go to our profiles. You'll find us there. That's all. Thanks for today. 